morning, Jacob's Well. Like Jalen said, my name is Tyler Stowell, one of the uh, on the teaching team and discipleship team here. Phil, thanks for reading that beautiful miktam of David. It's an obvious miktam there. Um, clearly, clearly, we'll talk about what in the world that means in a second. Um, yeah, we've been going through this series, Summer in the Psalms. We're almost there. Uh, we're almost at the end of the Psalms in the summer, which I don't have a problem with all the seasons. I grew up in Florida really hot there, and then in the summer it's even hotter, and so I don't have a problem with the seasons though, but like once we start going downhill, it just feels like it's downhill. So my wife reminded me this morning, we have less than a month until fall, which like I like fall, but then there's winter, and then there's February, so uh, I'm a little sad, I'm a little sad about that. Uh, Psalms, we've been talking about the Psalms, and Pastor Scott kicked things off uh, a number of weeks ago and talked about the Psalms really aren't something that are meant to be preached. They're meant to be prayed. So that makes it a little tricky up here trying to preach them when they're really meant to be prayed. But I, I've, I've enjoyed the series thus far. He gave us three things uh, that, that just to keep in mind with the Psalms. One, the majority are laments that deal with reality. The majority are kind of the ones that are like, are we allowed to sing and say that in church? Is that okay if I tell God what's really going on and voice my complaints? Yes. Scriptures, the Psalms would be a pain to say, yes, they deal with reality, which reality is hard. Two, they show us that God will restore. He's not just going to leave us there, but he will restore all things. And then three, they give us a vision for where it's all headed. And that's really what this one is about. Psalm 16 gives us, if you caught it, and we'll obviously walk through it, is a great vision for where everything's headed, where it's all going to end, which gives us some hope, some comfort, some peace, some perseverance in the midst of the hard realities that we face. So let's look at this. Let's talk about that little uh, like subtext title, a miktam of David. Uh, I have no idea what it means, and it's not obvious to me in the least uh, what that is, nor should it be to, to anyone here, I would assume. There's five of these miktams in the Psalms um, that are all from David. They're all that he wrote. I, I made a nice little table, uh, if we could put that slide up, of some of the similarities. Uh, six. I'm sorry, there's six. And this is where, again, it would be helpful if you had a physical Bible in front of you. I know the farther you're sitting away from the, the monitors, it's going to be harder to see. There's six of these. Five of them are all together from 56 to 60. And then, like, why they put this one uh, up in the teens, I have no idea. But there are a few similarities, and so even if you look at it, again, if you have trouble seeing it on there, you can look in a physical Bible, especially in the 56 to 60 range. There's, they all kind of start with this plea, and they all end with some kind of hope. There's some kind of cry out or plea to God about something, and then it ends in kind of this confident hope type of thing. What's interesting is all of the, if you look especially at the subtitles of the 56 through 60 ones, there's some pretty crazy stuff that's going on where it says that David is writing these or praying these, if we could say. 56, when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. 57, when he fled from Saul and was in the cave. 58, just has, according to Do Not Destroy, that classic ancient song or rhythm or beat that they must have sung this to, Do Not Destroy. 59, when Saul sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. 60, there's a battle going on. So there's kind of some crazy stuff, and there's these pleas that come out of David's heart. 
And you can see those there. Be gracious to me, O God. Be merciful to me. 58's kind of an interesting one. O God, break the teeth of the wicked. 59, deliver me from my enemies. Protect me. 60, God, you have broke, you've rejected us. You've broken our defense. Restore us. There's this plea of kind, of kind of protection or security in one sense. And that's what we see at the start of our psalm. Preserve me, O God. And then there's a hope at the end of every one of these. You'll not abandon my soul to Sheol in 16. 56, you've delivered my soul from death. 57, your steadfast love is great. Be exalted, O God. 58, the righteous will rejoice. 59, I'll sing praises to you, my strength. 60, with God will do valiantly. It's he who will tread down our foes. So there's kind of this sense of, of a danger and a plea that's voiced and then a hope that's given. But what in the world does that, that word miktah mean? Well, any of the commentaries I read, nobody really knows. It's kind of a lost, kind of a lost Hebrew word. Some of the closer, the closer ones, there's a, there's a word that means to cover, and there's almost this sense, not necessarily of covering, uh, like covering over our sin, but almost covering the mouth. There's a, a sense of secrecy, maybe, that maybe it means to, David was trying to, he was covering his lips, as in like, he can't pray this thing too loud when he's hiding in the cave, because then they would find out where he is. That feels like a little bit of a, of a weird kind of way to describe a psalm, and yet that probably is like really real. He's literally in the cave, he sees Saul who's trying to kill him, and he voices this prayer, but he can't actually say it out loud or he's going to give up his hiding spot. So there might be this kind of sense of these are meant to be prayed in perhaps the most secret of places in our own hearts. And as we even process through that, the idea would be that as we voice those complaints, as we voice those pleas and cries for protection, that we would land in a place of hope. And all of that happens internally. Of course, it's not meant to just be a, a strictly individual thing. The Psalms were, this is a public songbook for God's people. So even what we experience in a silent prayer kind of way, God would invite us to bring to his people. Uh, those are some thoughts on what in the world a miktam is. So now when you come across that, you can impress your friends. So let's, let's look at this verse by verse. Uh, verse one, the, the, the cry out, the plea, one and two. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say, to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Preserve me. First word, preserve. This is a, this is a beautiful word. Hebrew word, shamar. And it means to hedge about as with thorns. I love that little, that little addendum on the definition. To hedge about as with thorns. Used a whole mess of times throughout the Old Testament. 400 plus times we see this word show up in this sense of most often to keep. Half those times it's to keep. A lot of times it's it's the Lord keeping us, watching over us, putting a hedge around us. The other way in which it's used is for God's people to keep his commandments, to keep his ways. I love both of those things, kind of thinking about how near and dear do we hold God's ways in our own hearts? Do we hedge around them to make sure that we stay on the path of life that God has for us? But obviously it's a beautiful picture too of God keeping us. Psalm 121, in eight verses, I think eight times, it says, the Lord is my keeper, he will keep me. He will keep me. He watches over me. The picture, especially with hedging about, is with thorns. The picture that comes to my mind is barbed wire. Well, you think about, what does barbed wire do? Well, it, it keeps, in some ways, it keeps some danger in, but I think more applicable here, it, it protects a treasured thing, and it keeps danger out. That's what God does with us. That's what David is crying out here for. He needs refuge. He's saying, preserve me. Preserve me. Hedge about me. 
Don't just put a flimsy wall with, with thorns, with barbed wire. God, you've got to protect me. I've felt that in my own life at times. I'm certain you have too. And then it's interesting here the way that, that he addresses God. He starts with, oh God. Then you see, he says to the Lord, all caps. Then he says, you are my Lord, capital L, lowercase, rest of the letters. What do those mean? That's hard for us to pick up. In the original text, it's very clear that those are three different names for God. The first one, God, is El or Elohim, which means God of gods. It's kind of this general name for God, this general name that he is the God of all gods on the earth. Anybody can recognize him as such. Then we get to the L-O-R-D, right, and that little, the, the all caps references God's personal name, Yahweh, which is how he first revealed himself to, to his people back in the beginning, how he first revealed himself to Abraham. And, and it's Yahweh is really spelled in the English language, Y-H-W-H, which if you even try to say that, right, just think about how you would even say that word, Y-H-W-H. It just sounds like a breath, and that was kind of part of the point. God's people revered his name as so holy that they couldn't even allow it to cross their lips in a sense. And so they added in a couple of little vowels to just make it something that would be audible, Yahweh. That's where we get that name. That's the personal, the personal name of who God is. But then it's interesting that David gets even more personal, and he says, you are my Lord. That word there, Adonai, isn't even more, it's kind of a sense of like, this is who, this is, this is my Lord, like this is my God, this is who I'm following, my Adonai, that's the one that I'm going to, I'm going to track after, he's the one I'm going to submit to. So he gets super, starts general, gets personal, and then gets super personal. And I love that, that sense. I love that idea that even in the first line of this psalm, he gets really, really real with the God that he's addressing. And he kind of claimed, he, he's saying this to the Lord, but I just I also have a sense that he's saying this to himself. You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. There's nothing else out there that's going to satisfy the way that you will. There's nothing else out there that's good. Right? I, I think of uh, the story in Luke 15 that Jesus tells of the two lost sons, the younger brother, older brother, right? And the, the little brother, as the story that Jesus told, he, he says to his dad, hey, uh, I have everything good apart from you. I wish you were dead. Would you give me my inheritance now so that I can bolt? And that's what he does. And he goes and he looks for goodness out there. He goes and looks for goodness. And if you know the story, if you don't, it's okay. But if you know the story, he doesn't find it. It's temporarily satisfying all the parties and all the stuff that he goes to, but eventually his money runs out. There's a famine and he's in a pigsty. That's where he ends up. That's not good. There, there is no goodness out there apart from the Lord. And David here is, he's saying that to the Lord, but he's reminding himself as much as anything that there is no good out there. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, is there some goodness out there that you think you're missing out on, some goodness that I think I'm missing out on? As we get beyond this, there's really two groups of people that pop up quickly in verses 3 and 4. Uh, the saints in the land and then those that run after other gods. The saints in the land and those that run after the other gods. Really, it's two camps. Those who trust in Yahweh, those who make Yahweh their, their Lord specifically, and those who trust and run after other gods. Right, the Bible would refer to this as idolatry, which is 
we've talked about this before from up here, so this might not be totally new, but a little hard for us to grab a sense of what idolatry is, right? We don't necessarily have statues uh, everywhere in, in our homes that we bow down to, and yet there are very much idols that exist uh, running rampant in our own, in our society, in our own lives, in our own hearts. The ways in which, in verse 4, if you could scroll down there, Mike, where it says we, you run, those that run after another god, we have to be able to look ourselves in the mirror and see how we run after other gods, how we look after other things, looking for goodness elsewhere, trusting that thing to give us what only God can give us. Tim Keller talks about four deep idols is what he says, the way, the way in which every other false god that we would run after in life is connected to one of these four. I tend to agree with them. Approval, power, comfort, or control. If you think about the, the ways in which you even discover an idol, it's kind of one of those, like, what do, you, what do you daydream about? What is it you get most frustrated about in life? In kind of the, the most raw, real moments of life, what if you lost would just be, would be devastating? Now, obviously, there's some things that are, are worth being devastated about. There are losses in life that are really hard. I'm not saying it's wrong to be upset about losing loved ones or losing a job or things like that. I'm not saying it's wrong to be frustrated with injustices in the world. Those are good things. But often, following kind of the trail of our emotions sometimes can point us to the thing we're ultimately putting hope in other than God, if that makes sense. And typically, that's going to be tied to an, inord- an inordinate need for comfort, control, approval, or power. God's people had a rather bleak history of trusting in other gods. They would run after other gods all the time. And even that might be hard for us to understand because we, we, don't, we don't have names for all these things. We don't see them. And yet this was wildly common in the ancient times. There were all kinds of gods, gods of fertility, gods of, uh, gods of crops and fruit, gods of rain, gods of sun, gods of what, all these different things, people had developed ways in which they would offer sacrifices as a way to say, we're devoted to this God, and so we're going to give you whatever, this animal, we're going to give you these plants, and these fruits, and these crops, we're going to give you these children, and then therefore, when it starts to rain afterwards, like, we know that the God was satisfied with our sacrifice, and okay, we'll get, we'll get more stuff, and it became this transactional thing. Isn't it really, really great that God doesn't operate that way, that he makes the sacrifice for us. And yet this was, this was a habit that God's people got into regularly, regularly. In 1 Kings 18, God's people were worshiping historically. The one that they often worshiped was a God named Baal, who was a, a rain God and a fertility God. And in times of famine, they would start to get a little like, I don't know, God, when is it going to rain? Well, let's, you know, let's kind of have this little uh, mistress God on the side, and we'll just do some sacrifices over here, like just in case. And God was not, was not down with that at all. And so there's this huge showdown in 1 Kings 18. It's a beautiful story where Elijah is the only prophet left, the only one that's like still trusting Yahweh. And he says, hey, we're going to have this, this contest. I love that there's a kid's story down the hall in the, one of the kid's rooms called the God Contest. That's a little kid's version of this story. I love that idea, the God Contest. And Elijah says, hey, we're going to do this sacrifice thing. And I'm going to put a bull on the altar, and then you guys, prophets of Baal, you can put one on the altar, and hey, whichever God rains down by fire and lightning, like, that's the real God. And they're like, yeah, okay, no problem. Long story short, Elijah's God is the real God, and that's the one that comes down with fire. And the sorrows of the other gods, of the other people multiply. 
they recognize this emptiness that they've been chasing after, thinking, hey, this will give us comfort or power or approval or control of some sort over life when it feels out of control, and they find, nope, it doesn't. It doesn't. The sorrows of those that run after other gods multiply. One commentator said it this way as we think about even the land that they were in. Many Israelites apparently turned to other established deities of the land, thinking them more effective than Yahweh, who had only recently arrived as a deity, or so they thought. As if when God's people came in to the land that God had promised them, that was the, the first time that the Lord was stepping foot in that place. And it's when we forget the promises, forget the very promises even in this psalm, that we start to run after other gods. So we have to consider that too. What gods have you run, at, run after? What, what, in what ways have your sorrows multiplied because of that? I could tell plenty of stories about that. For sake of time, I'll spare you. But I could tell plenty of stories of the way that you chase after, I chase after one of those things, and it's like, gosh, this was such a dumb decision. Why would I do that? That's because, yeah, we need new hearts. Plenty of theologians have said over the years, our hearts are like idol-making factories. We are designed to worship something. We're going to worship something. It just goes so much better when we direct that worship to, to the Lord. David here is in a, in a state of clarity, so to speak, and he recognizes, hey, the, the sorrows of those that run after another God, like they, the sorrows multiply. I don't want that. I'm not even going to entertain that. He starts to say here, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He doesn't even want to speak the names of these other gods. He doesn't even want to call them out. They're, all, they're not even worthy of him saying that. This little drink offerings of blood thing, it's, you know, it's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting thing to say. Uh, there's a lot of different kind of uh, perspectives on what exactly he's meaning. It's worth jumping back to uh, the beautiful Old Testament book of Leviticus, Chapter 17, where God talks about blood and drink offerings and such. If you've never, you know, spent some time with the Lord on a, in the morning, out back with a cup of coffee in the book of Leviticus, like, you know, uh, go for it if you want. There's actually some pretty cool stuff. Leviticus 17, 10 to 12. Let's take a look at that. This is God giving the law and giving them the ways in which life works best, the ways in which they will represent him to the world. And when it comes to sacrifices, here's what he says. If anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats, my blood, eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. It does make you wonder, like, did they really need instruction not to eat blood? Like, what was going on where they really needed, like, hey, don't do that? And yet, the reason is this was a rather common practice in the ancient world. Whatever kind of way in which they could get that God's attention, lowercase g, they would do that, including if it meant drinking blood. And so God says, hey, don't do that. Maybe obvious reason would be it's probably pretty unhealthy for you. But there's some really, really beautiful stuff here, especially in verse 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. 
and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Right? When the people would sin, the penalty for sin is death. The penalty for using the very breath that God gives us to sin, to do something that is not according to his ways, is to give him his breath back. That's what he, that's what he deserves. And that's why he set up this whole system where animals would be sacrificed, a life for a life. A life would be lost for the sin that was committed. It's the blood that makes atonement by the life. Anybody catching some Jesus things here with the sacrifice? It's almost like God knew what he was doing when he set this up, when you think about it. Almost like he knew what was going to happen with Jesus on the cross, shedding his blood for us. Let's look at another beautiful uh, morning quiet time passage in Numbers 35. Numbers 35, 33. This one is actually really cool. I love this one. More laws happening here. God giving them out as they're getting ready to enter the promised land. Or they might still be a ways away from the promised land. Uh, I have to look back at the context. But more laws here. And he says, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, meaning like murder, killing, pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that's shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. So laws here about interpersonal violence and murder, and it's saying, hey, the only way that atonement can be made is if the murderer's blood is shed. Like, think about Jesus. He was not a murderer. He was the one murdered. And yet it's his blood that makes atonement, not just for the land, but for anybody that would call him Lord. Right? The paradox and the upside-downness of the gospel here. No atonement can be made for the blood that's shed except by the blood of the one who shed it, except unless Jesus is the one whose blood is shed. There's just some beautiful stuff here. And so when, when David talks about, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to lift this drink offering to my lips. I'm not going to take the name on the lips. He, he may or may not be referring to an actual ritual act. But the picture here, as one commentator said in, in something I read this week, the picture is one of a, a pagan worshiper lifting the libation cup to his lips to drink the sacrificial blood, thus identifying with the names of the pagan gods in an act of allegiance and devotion to them. He's lifting his cups to drink the sacrificial blood. Last Supper and Communion, anybody? Jesus reinstating, taking, taking that practice and say, hey, no, 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 this, is, this actually will cleanse you. Right, even with that context, could you imagine the disciples being like, wait, we're supposed to drink the blood? Like, what in the world? Is that actual blood in there? A beautiful reorientation of some of these ancient practices and Jesus saying, let me show you the depth of my love and sacrifice for you. Really, really cool stuff. And so David's like, I'm not drinking those cups over there. He then turns and he calls the Lord his cup. Verse 5, and six, there's some great stuff here. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He kind of steps back and just surveys his life, surveys what God has given him, and recognizes, like, there's some beautiful stuff here. There's some beautiful stuff here. There's this idea of, of contentment. Even though he might be in a cave somewhere crying out, asking for for mercy to be preserved. Even though maybe he's not totally satisfied, there's a sense of contentment with what he's got. He recognizes 
Verse, verse 8, he says, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. This is another beautiful Hebrew word here. To be shaken means to waver or slip or be overthrown. So to be not shaken would be not that. To not waver, to not slip, to not be overthrown. One of the, one of the definitions I found was this idea of, of tree roots not being moved. I love that, that image, even as we started the series in Psalm 1. A tree planted by streams of water. There's a, a sense of that tree's not going anywhere as it remains rooted. David here is saying, that's me because God is before me, because he's at my right hand. I won't be shaken. I won't be overthrown. I won't slip. In the night also, my heart instructs me. He says that in verse 7. There's this confidence that he has in the Lord. Psalm 127.2 is a place where this was connected. Let's put that one up there. Where the psalmist says, it's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil for he gives to his beloved sleep. That would be like a whole sermon that could preach on its own right there. We could pick that verse apart, right? Any, anybody, anybody rise early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil? Come on now, in this part of the country? Yes, all the time, for, for many different reasons. And the psalmist here says, hey, he gives to his beloved sleep. You can receive that at night, you know, when you, when you lay down. You can receive sleep from the Lord. And David's like, yeah, even, it, even at night, I'm reminded of something like this. I'm not eating the bread of anxious toil is what he seems to say in Psalm 16. He goes further back in 16 in verse, in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. There's a rejoicing. There's an exuberance here. There's a confidence. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol was the, the place of the dead. Right? Just, just picture whatever your favorite movie is where there's people that are kind of at the, the edge of like, they got to make a decision to go down the dark tunnel or into the cave or into whatever kind of lair of the villain in the movie. Whatever, whatever movie comes to your mind, right? Just picture that moment where you're like, please don't do that. Don't, don't go in there. Like, I know it's part of them, but don't do that. It's just a bad idea. That's the place of the dead. The, the abode of the dead is what one scholar called it. To enter Sheol was to depart from all forms of human existence and activity without any hope of return. Right? That's that moment in that, that movie that comes to your mind. Like, if you go down there, you're probably not coming back. And then this is going to be a really bad movie, so please don't go down there. Although all humans eventually entered Sheol through death, the only hope for escape from it, from its clutches, lay in the hands of Yahweh. Really interesting perspective on the place of the dead and on death and resurrection. We, we talked about this a, a couple of years ago when we walked through the Apostles' Creed. Resurrection was just like not really a thing that the ancient Hebrews had in mind. They, they did have this sense of like one day at the end of all things, there will be this sense of resurrection but even that there were two different camps that were kind of split on that but like a personal resurrection uh, as soon as i die i'm with the lord present in the body like that wasn't a category david's writing this here was probably very much more likely like you're just not going to let me die in this moment you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. that's really what more likely what he was getting at it just wasn't a category for him the beautiful thing though is we have the hope of the resurrection in jesus of course and the Apostle Peter, 
the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, they reference this in Acts in a couple of different places. They're each preaching a sermon about this holy one that a lot of scholars would think is being referenced here, even if David didn't even realize it. The holy one, let your holy one see corruption. Acts 2, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. I think it's starting in verse 25. Yeah, he's preaching, and he quotes this psalm here. So David says concerning him, concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Greek word for Sheol. Or let your holy one see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You make me full of gladness with your presence. He just quotes this exact psalm, saying this is Jesus. This is the one that David was writing about. He is the capital H, capital O, Holy One that did not, that was not abandoned, that did not see corruption, that came back to life. That's the hope that we have. Acts 13, Paul is talking to a group of Jews. And he also references this, 1335. Therefore he, talking about David, also says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Because of the the resurrection of Jesus, there had been this hope that had come about. And sometimes we need, yeah, we, we need that hope of the resurrection. Not sometimes, we need that hope of the resurrection all the time. We see that here in Scripture, but sometimes there's just, there's other places and other ways even in which we need evidence. Sometimes we can sit here and wrestle with Scripture, and we can wrestle with just needing a sense of security, a sense of promise from God. Sometimes our hearts need another kind of evidence. And so one that I would offer as it relates to the resurrection, to not forget the cultural, societal implications of the resurrection, to not forget the tectonic shift in the work week. Jewish people worshiped on the last day of the week until Jesus came back from the dead. And then everything shifted, and all of a sudden it was the first day of the week that became the day of worship, which we still very much feel the ripple effects of that today. Andy Crouch puts it like this, the latte-sipping customer at Starbucks on the upper west side of Manhattan is taking her time with the Sunday Times, though she likely has no idea about the origins of why Sunday is the closest thing we have to a day of rest. Let Let that millennial drinking that latte up on the Upper West Side this morning, be a piece of evidence that says the resurrection, like that was a real thing in real time and space and real history. Like, let's not forget that. It's not just a great thing to preach about on a Sunday morning. Like, it actually happened. Maybe you're like, well, yeah, okay, like, duh, that's why we're sitting here. But sometimes it's just helpful to my own heart to remember, like, this had, this was an actual event that really happened. And there's people that are having some semblance of rest today with no idea about it. Because 2,000 years later, it completely shifted something as simple as the work week. Let that be evidence that this Holy One did not see corruption. I love what, what David says here. Even the verb tenses that he uses at the end of this thing. Right, he says, I, I have set the Lord before me, past tense. Present, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure. Verse 9, verse 10, you will not future abandon my soul 
Right? His past decisions have brought him present peace. And then future hope brings him present comfort. What is the future hope? Verse 11. This is just a beautiful, I mean, this is a beautiful verse. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. All right, I love the math here. I was a math education major, not really dabbling in economics, but I do know, at least for an investment, what's the, uh, what are you really looking for in terms of a return? How much you can get and how long you continue to get it. Here, what's the amount of return? Fullness. How long do you get it? Forever. Right? I love the math here. Math in real life. By the way, like, you know, if you've ever done a budget or gone grocery shopping or been running behind and figured out, like, I need to start moving faster. I'm not going to make it. Like, that's calculus. You just did calculus. You just didn't know it. Right? If you've ever figured out whether you have enough money left in your budget to get whatever, like, that's algebra. You do math in real life. If you've ever designed anything, like, that's geometry. So don't come at me with, like, what is math for? Like, you use it all the time. Okay, right here even, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. This is, this is the satisfaction that we have on the table. Pastor Tim Keller says it beautifully, that someday we will not just sense God at our side, but we will see him face to face. And in our resurrected bodies, that will be endless, unimaginable pleasure. It's satisfaction. Like after a great meal, think about a time in your life where you just, you had a great meal, maybe it's Thanksgiving, maybe it's something else, where you just sat back and you were like, I am totally satisfied. I think about a conference that Alice and I went to in Queens one time, and there was this little Venezuelan place right down the street that was, that was highly recommended. And so we went there for uh, dinner at the end of day one of the conference, and I had this like, some type of sandwich that the, the bun was made out of like sweet plantains, and it had all kinds of this yummy sauce and goodness inside like it was unbelievable one of the best things i've ever eaten in my life we went back there for lunch the next day in conference day two like it was just that good and i remember afterwards just being totally satisfied and then i was hungry later because that's how the body works and even though there's this fullness of joy and this this pleasures forevermore that's offered like it it doesn't satisfy forevermore right now it doesn't, it doesn't, like, the joy that I sense sometimes in God's presence, like, it, it's, it feels fleeting. It doesn't feel full. It doesn't last here and now. One, that's okay. But two, it raises some questions about this psalm. As, as hope-giving as it is, as beautiful as it is. Sometimes we try to use a psalm like this like, I was really trying to wrestle with, is this a psalm of, Pastor Scott mentioned at one point, there are psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, and psalms of reorientation. Orientation is, yeah, kind of the basics, getting, getting centered in and keyed in on who Jesus is, the basics of the faith, maybe when we first come to Jesus. Or there's this passion, this zeal, this excitement. This kind of feels like one of those. But what do we do with that in the middle of disorientation? When it doesn't feel like fullness of joy. When I'm not sensing those pleasures in any kind of way that this psalm apparently promises. Sometimes we try, to just, we try to just push that away. 
And I, and I hope that in this series we've come to a place as a body that even over the last couple of years as we've embraced lament, embraced that practice, that there's a little bit of a sense of we're willing to face reality, that we don't just put a, put a kind of a Band-Aid on hard things and say, no, 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 we're just not going to deal with that. Here's this, this kind of nice little Bible verse. At, you know, hey, don't rejoice always. It's going to be great. I, I hope that we don't do that as much anymore because the Psalms invite us to, to lament. The Psalms invite us. They don't just say, look at the hard things. You're like, eh, no, no, we don't have to go there. We don't have to go there. Just, that's fine. Leave it there. Pleasures forevermore. That's where we're going to stay. Because I have a ton of questions about this psalm. Let's look back at it. Psalm 16, verse 1. What about when I, when I don't feel preserved? What about when it doesn't seem like God is hedging around me? What, if, what about when it seems like the thorns are pointed inward? Verse 4. What about when those that chase after other gods, what about when it doesn't seem like their sorrows multiply, but their blessings? What about when it seems like they're getting ahead? What about when my sorrows lessen temporarily when I chase after other gods? What about the pleasure and joy that's found there? What about maybe the decisions that I've made that have made my sorrows multiply beyond repair, beyond what I think could be repaired? Verse 6, what about when it doesn't really look like the lines have fallen in pleasant places? To go back to the prodigal son story, the two lost sons, what about when my inheritance, this is the cry of the older brother, what about when my inheritance gets wasted by my younger brother? When it seems like other people are messing with what should be mine. Verse 8, why, why do I feel shaken at times? Like, I think I, I think I typically set the Lord before me, so why? Why do I feel, what about that? What about when my, my whole being and my flesh don't experience this gladness, this rejoicing, this security? What do we do with that? What do we do with this psalm when, those thing, when, when life happens? What about when, when the anxious thoughts just feel like a barrage? Right? There isn't this, yes, the peace of Christ will guard our hearts and minds, but what about when it doesn't? What about when this, this like filter that I just expect to be over my mind to keep all of the bad thoughts out, like what about when that just doesn't exist? What am I supposed to do with that? What about when my body is broken and it's just, it's just in pain and it doesn't feel like it's dwelling secure? What about when I feel abandoned? And, and verse 11, like, what is that joy and pleasure even supposed to feel like? Why is it so fleeting sometimes? What do we do with this psalm in times of disorientation? What do we do with this psalm when it feels like we're living in a, in a psalm like Psalm 13? If you have your Bible open in front of you, it's right it, on mine, it's on the same page. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? We preached on this just a few weeks ago. Jalen, was that you? Or was that somebody else? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Like, how, how are these two going together? 
A couple weeks ago, I think it was Pastor Scott did Psalm 84, and he called it a reorientation psalm. There was kind of this sense of like, at that point, the psalmist had been through some stuff and, and had a reorientation. It kind of come back to the truths of Psalm 16. Like, I don't know that the one writing Psalm 16 has been through Psalm 13 yet. Psalm 16 just seems like pretty happy-go-lucky. Yeah, there's, a, there's some danger, but even, there's not even a, a, a subtitle in Psalm 16 like there are in the 50s where he's in a cave and there's, he's been captured and all this stuff. Like, Psalm 16 just feels like everything's great. What about Psalm 13? What do we do with that? These are the questions that were rolling through my mind and heart this week. No magic pill or formula or answer that just makes it all go away. We really do have to walk by faith, not by sight, as as maybe trite as that seems for some of the things that I know you're going through. And that there is a sense that we we come back to verse 10, that he will not abandon us. That he will not abandon us. It's clinging to this with all that we have, that he will not abandon us. It's reminding one another of that truth. It's recounting stories in your own life of how he has not abandoned you in the past, recounting those stories in your own life to somebody else who needs to know it right now. What, what, came, what came to mind so much this week is, um, Alice and I have a friend who's, a, who's in the uh, singer-songwriting entertaining business. That probably makes you pretty jealous. You have some cool friends. Um, and so, yeah, this, uh, this girl, we'll call her Rachel, uh, she was actually Allison's roommate back in college, sang at our wedding. There's kind of a whole more to that story. I, just, I won't take time to tell now. You can ask about it later. Um, but yeah, dear friend, we were involved in campus ministry together. She would lead worship for crew, the ministry we were involved with, started making music, started making Jesus music, uh, opened for 10th Avenue North kind of back in the early days of her career. And yeah, just like had some really raw, good, great lyrics. And there's a song that she wrote called Not Abandon uh, that just has some really great lyrics that I think come from this song. Can we put those up there? I love, and I think about this often, it's almost, there's almost not even like a verse in chorus, just the way she writes it, it's just kind of this cyclical thing. And so it goes like this, you will not abandon me, you seal my heart, your blood the ring. Like a flower opens up, you're teaching me to trust. Though the world around me fades, oh, your love, it stays the same. And at times when you hide your face, that's the Psalm 13 part there, the cross is still the place where I'm convinced that you will not abandon me. The cross has to be the place that we look to and stare at. Looking at the abandonment of Jesus as evidence that we will not be abandoned. And then there is a, a bridge kind of thing where she says, I'm not convinced, or, or I am convinced that you will not abandon me, that you're not like humans, that you should bend or falter. God's not going to change his mind. And we're at a loss. How do we respond? We're at a loss to say how beautiful you are. The source of all our confidence rests solely in your goodness. And then some other great tenses of time here. Yesterday, today, forever, praise the Yahweh God. I love this song. And it's just been, I mean, I've just been playing it on repeat this whole week. The, 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 the hard thing about this story is this, this song is almost nowhere on the internet now. Had such a hard time finding it. 
And Allison had a, bought it on iTunes years ago and had it downloaded, but you know, technology is technology, so I couldn't figure out how to get that song on my phone because I have a different Apple ID, right? And the first world problems here. How to, and so I'm trying to find it on the internet, and it's just nowhere. It's not on Spotify, it's not on Apple Music, it's not on any of those things. Definitely not on the radio, if you know what a radio is. It's not on the internet anymore because she is not walking with Jesus and hasn't been for probably a decade, which is really hard. And most of the times that I listen to this song, I listen and sing for my own self, but I'm also, in one sense, crying out for her. As she sang this song to the Lord, there's a part of me that says, God, would you sing this back to her, that you have not abandoned her? She was a missionary kid. Her parents, they have been through the ringer with some stuff. And it's just like, Lord, you, you said, you said you would not abandon. Why have you let this one run away? Why have you let this prodigal go? Like, don't abandon her. Would the cross still be the place? Would her confidence not be in any of the other things she's chasing in, in Nashville and L.A.? Would it be in, this, in your goodness? God, why? How long are you going to forget her? That's been a hard thing this week. And maybe you know others like that. Maybe you've been that one that God has not forgotten and has brought you back. Praise God for that. Maybe there's others in your family or your neighborhood or your community. And you need this promise. You need to be reminded that God will not abandon. And so there's two kind of practical things that just came to mind as I thought about, like, what do we do with this? Really, it's all centered on grace, on just having grace for one another and grace for ourselves. So as I, I think about even kind of re, not, I'm not changing scripture, but revoicing it, right? David, again, is writing this to, to the Lord, but just to revoice it as if the Lord's saying it to us. He writes to David, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. But what would it mean for God to say to us, I will not abandon you? Insert your name there. Right? And I think it comes out in two ways. One, plural, he will not abandon you. I will not abandon you, church. I will not abandon my kingdom, my purposes in this world. I will not abandon Central Jersey and what you all, Jacobs, well, are trying to do there. My kingdom will come. So we can rest. That doesn't mean just sit back. Do people need to hear the gospel? Yes. Will anyone tell them unless we are sent? No. Are people hurting all around us? Yes. Has the church too often been complacent and idle in history in meeting the needs of others? Yes. Will God's kingdom still come? Yes. Is he the one that's ultimately responsible for that? Yes. Is he going to abandon his church? No. So we can abandon all the little false hopes we have and all our little lowercase a agendas for trying to make our perception of his kingdom come. We can let go of that. Our will be done. All around me. All around me as it is in my own head. We can let that go. So that his kingdom really would come. His will would be done. See, when we refuse to be still and let God be God, afraid that he'll abandon us, we cling to this false hope that's not found in his kingdom. When we're afraid that he's going to abandon us or that he's going to abandon some other people in some other church and what they're doing, we think, yeah, he's, he's, his blessing's on us. When we, when we forget that he won't abandon his church, it just takes us to some wrong places. I got this right this time. The poet, T.S. Eliot, 
and the writer, said, I say to my soul, wait without hope, which seems kind of interesting. Why would I wait without hope? I said to my soul, my soul, be still and wait without hope. Alan Noble, who's an author of a book that I've been reading this summer, comments on it this way, and I just think it's really good. The hope that Eliot tells his readers to wait without is a false hope, a hope that demands results, an impatient hope, a hope that's pragmatic, a hope that rushes to action, a hope that cannot be still and know that God is God. This false hope naturally leads to bitterness. When we are convinced that we have the plan for redeeming the world, and we're the agents of that redemption, whether it be spiritual or political or physical, we won't have grace for those who aren't part of our movement or who aren't doing enough. The inadequacies of others become intolerable because redemption is just around the corner if those people would just get on board. Right? When we think that God's going to abandon his church, we lack grace for others. He's not going to abandon his church. So may we not abandon one another. May we choose love over pushing whatever, whatever agenda we think we think God has, right? If he had an agenda, it was love. In a sacrificial type of way, not in the way that maybe our society even paints it. So he says to us, plural, you, I will not abandon you. So stop fighting with each other. Secondly, I will not abandon you, singular. Right? The reality is, for any of us, because we live in a finite, broken world, by definition, any joy or pleasure we experience is going gonna, is gonna to fall woefully short of what Psalm 16 promises us, right? It's going to fall woefully short of fullness and forever, at least on this earth. Like, that's just the reality of living in a finite, broken world, in finite, broken bodies. We, we, we can't even comprehend the infinite. And yet, there are, there are many less good pleasures that God gives us as gifts, right? The, the height of all pleasure and joy and fullness doesn't have to be some super spiritual moment with coffee in the backyard in the morning in Leviticus. It doesn't have to be then. There's lots of other little pleasures, good pleasures, less good pleasures that God gives us. And so it's becoming content with contentment. There's a difference. A friend of mine put it one, like this one time. There's a difference between contentment and satisfaction. Like we might not taste satisfaction fully and forevermore until we get to heaven. But we can be content here and now with smaller, lesser things. And so Alan Noble puts it this way about these less good pleasures. I love this. He said, if I were a better man, more spiritually and intellectually mature, maybe I'd only find comfort in poetry, prayer, contemplation, and walks in nature. Don't miss his sarcasm. Sometimes I do, but this society is brutal. And there's no shame in finding joy in simple pleasures that ease the burden we carry, even if those pleasures are less good. He writes, I can hear you thinking, why would you choose a less good method to cope? We can't consciously choose anything less than optimal without beating ourselves up over it. I resonate with that so strongly. I'm constantly thinking in my time with the Lord, in Sabbath, in ministry, in work, in family, like, am I doing enough? Am I doing it the right way? Is this the best thing? It's just a, a message of the Western world. He says, this is precisely the danger that we turn our rest into yet another task to master, another opportunity to compete and maximize efficiency. I just stopped reading when I got to this part of the book. In designing creation, God took our human frailty into account and blessed us with a number of gifts that help make life tolerable. James 1, every, gift, every good gift comes from God. 
Oh, I do this last part with the spiritual especially. I make, I make that time in the morning. It's usually not with Leviticus. I make that time this like desperate attempt to get what I need for the day. And don't hear me say the wrong thing. Like, like we ought to be desperate for God. He is the sort, like if he takes the breath out of our lungs, like that's it. We are desperately in desperate need of him. So I'm not saying that's a, that's a bad thing. But I, I turn it into, if I don't feel this fullness of joy and this pleasure forevermore in the however many minutes I have in the morning before my kids wake up, like then I've failed. And I haven't mastered that task. And then I'm on my own for the rest of the day because I didn't get filled up. Which I, like, I just don't, God will not abandon me. That's just not how it is. And I've had to reorient even the way that I see that. I was reminded this week, or a couple weeks ago, of the way that Jen Wilkin put spending time with God. She says, so often we view it, she's an author and teacher down in Texas, so often we view it as going to an ATM to make withdrawal, to, to get what I need, to get filled up with the, with the Lord and the Word. And like, again, amen to that. Like that. We need to be filled up with rivers of living water that would flow in and out of us. And yet she said, so often, like what if we viewed it like we were making deposits? Sitting there with God, spending time reading his word, praying, crying out, lamenting, whatever it is, making deposits. That then it'll be on him to remind us of later. Right? The Holy Spirit's job is to remind us of everything that Jesus taught. Our job is to put that word away, right? to tuck it away. It's as if the Holy Spirit is going to go to some, some pantry or cabinet in our souls where we have scripture stored up in the moment in which we need it. And yet if all I have stored up is Genesis 1-1, that God created everything, like that might not help me a whole lot in a lot of situations in life. There's some good truth there. I think God created everything, but that might not help me in the moments where I'm tempted to run after other gods. I've got to put that, I've got to put that there. I've got to make deposits into my own heart. And yet, even if it's a little bit, like God is a God who takes a little and makes much of it. Even if it's five loaves and two fish, he takes however many minutes I have in the morning before my kids wake up. Like he takes that and he makes much of it. He is the, he is the great interest rate on our deposits. More math. And so we need to have grace for each other and we need to have grace for ourselves. Like life is hard. Psalm 13's happen. And that doesn't mean we abandon Psalm 16. I think this is an orientation psalm. I think this is on the front end of a lot of suffering. But we don't abandon orientation psalms when we're in disorientation. Without this one, without the hope of the path of life, of present, of fullness of joy in God's present, at pleasures forevermore, without the hope that he will, abandon our, that he will not abandon our soul, like Psalm 13 is hopeless. There is no answer to the will you forget me forever. The answer to those questions is silence. So we still need the original orientation psalms in the midst of that, maybe mostly in the midst of that. We don't ever graduate from them. The answer from psalms like Psalm 16 to psalms like Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He says, no, not forever. I will not forget you. I will not abandon you. The only thing that will last forever is pleasure and joy in my presence. You will not be forgotten forever. And I know it doesn't always seem like it, he seems to say to us, but I'm at your right hand and I will hold on to you. I will not abandon you so that one day, church, follower of Jesus, 
God says, someday you will not just sense me at your side, but you'll see me face to face. And that resurrected body, that will be endless, unimaginable pleasure. That's the hope that we have to cling to. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for your word. Thanks that it is living and active. That while, yes, it's helpful to to be able to categorize parts of your word that may be more applicable in different seasons of life, like an orientation psalm versus a disorientation one, thanks that it's all still true. And Lord, I do believe that you have for us in our whole being to experience the truth of your word, and yet we do walk by faith, not by sight. All of our senses won't always experience this fullness of joy, and yet one day we will. Like, we will get to be present with you in this fullness of joy. We can't even imagine that, Lord. And ultimately, it's not because of our faithfulness to you. It's your faithfulness to us that you will not abandon us, Jesus. Would you sink that truth deeper into our hearts and minds and souls and bodies that we would indeed rejoice knowing that we dwell secure. In Jesus' name, amen.